Es war einfach nur I just enjoyed the silence, the brightness and the warmth. It was like being lovingly embraced and it was simply a feeling of security. On the other hand, I intuitively felt that I was in a place that one imagines as the highest place as a human being. That was so clear that I didn't doubt it in any way. In our language, in Christian-influenced language, we call this facing God. Ms. Metze, you're a trained bookseller, but you've also had numerous other professional activities. Among other things, you're a jewellery designer and a trained astrologer with a psychological focus. In 2004, you had a near-death experience, or, as you prefer to call it, a near-life experience. Please tell us about the circumstances that led to it at that time. An operation was pending. That's exactly how it was. It was the 24th of May, 2004. It was a near-life experience, not a near-death experience. Because in that moment I was so much freer, so much more myself, as never before and never after. It was about an emergency operation. There were no signs beforehand that I would be admitted to hospital on that day, the 24th of May and that the doctors would then have beads of sweat on their foreheads, because I had no pain or any other symptoms, except for unexplained toothache in the weeks beforehand, but no pain that would have pointed to what turned out to be a ruptured appendix during the operation. Everyone told me afterwards, you must have had stomach pains, but that was not the case. How did the operation come about? You didn't feel any pain? No, the pain started on the 23rd of May. I woke up in the morning. I was with my parents and I wasn't feeling well. Then I said, I'm going to stay in bed for a bit. But as the day went on, it became more and more unpleasant. And then I said, I don't know how I'm going to drive from Kaiserslautern to Munich again to work the following day. In the afternoon, my mother called an emergency doctor again, who said, if you feel any worse, you have to go to hospital. But he couldn't find anything wrong. I was told to drink a lot and apply a hot water bottle. But on the morning of the 24th of May, it got worse. My mother then called her family doctor. It was a Monday and the doctors were available again. The doctor advised my mother to get a tablet for me to take. I took it and at the same moment I spat it out with the thought, if you want to kill me, I'll go voluntarily. So it was pretty intense for me. The doctor then came. And because of my reactions, it was clear to her, without further examination, that it must be a ruptured appendix and that I had to go to hospital immediately. The preliminary examinations there, however, 
did not lead to a more precise diagnosis because my abdomen was simply totally ulcerated. When the doctor discussed with me the course of the operation and also the incision, he said to me, I don't know what I'm going to operate on. And I said, me neither, so we are a dream team after all. Then he said, now you're joking too. I replied, what else am I supposed to do? You're the expert, not me. He was hopeful that it was just a ruptured appendix, and, as I said, that was confirmed in the operation. I was given a mild painkiller for the transport, but otherwise I was really conscious the whole time and could also communicate well. Normally I would have had to be transferred to a ward before the operation, because all the operating theatres were occupied and I had to wait. I still heard the phone call when the doctor said to a ward nurse, no, she should stay here for the operation, she won't come up to you. Only later did I realise that the doctor must have been more worried than I was. It was dangerously close. Yes, but I did not notice. It was clear to me that nothing would happen. I then had to wait three hours until an operating theatre was free. During this time, it was then that I simply reviewed my 46 years of life without cause. They were really very bare rooms where I was parked in the meantime. But it wasn't this classic life film that is so often described. I thought, okay, that's fine, there's nothing to complain about now. That was good. There was nothing that was kind of open at that point. There was nothing that I had just started. I was at a zero point, so to speak. At that moment, I also let go of the biggest wish I had at that time. I thought, okay, if my life is to be over now, then so be it, and life was good. But I also knew that I clearly perceived it that way. What comes now is not in human hands. I accepted that and thought, it will be as it should be. At this point, so to speak, you mentally concluded, took stock. Not concluded, but assumed what was to come. That wasn't bad. Everything would have been fine for me. How then did the near-death or near-life experience come about? The first part of my near-death experience happened on the way to the anesthesia room, because in the meantime I was being prepared for the operation. Suddenly I found myself in a white sphere, as if it was made of angora. It was a light flooded room full of warmth and absolute silence. That was the most beautiful thing, because finally no one wanted anything from me. I just enjoyed the silence, the brightness and the warmth. It was like being lovingly embraced. It was simply a feeling of security. 
On the other hand, I intuitively felt that I was in a place that one imagines as the highest place as a human being. That was so clear that I didn't doubt it in any way. In our language, in Christian-influenced language, we call this facing God. It took me 12 years to find a new term for myself, because I find this designation, God, or other designations in other religions, a limitation. After 12 years, I chose the term for myself, Supreme Beingness, because that encompasses everything. Nobody asked me then, do you pay church tax? For whom? And to which denomination do you belong? Are you green, checkered, or do you look embarrassing somehow? I was simply seen and accepted as a human being, and I was loved unconditionally. In a way, I had never experienced love before and never experienced it again afterwards. Then communication began at eye level. There was no face. Most people want to know, was that Jesus? Was that God? What did he look like? Or whatever. I can't say. It was energy. It was light. It was warmth. And it was all clear. I realized that what I have in terms of abilities is important, that I should not make myself small, that I should not let myself be blinded by other people who think that they can have an influence. I have to stay true to myself. Just learning this was something that totally overwhelmed me. And the moment this information came, it also strengthened me. It was really like that. So I suddenly stood up tall. So it was precisely such information that you needed because of your life situation, because of your life history. Yes, because I was neither too fat nor too thin, too stupid or anything else. I experienced this counterpart at eye level. So there was not the dependency relationship, parent-child, or the situation boss-employee. But everything was at eye level, and that was phenomenal. In the end, that's also something that shows up in many near-death experiences. Although all the ones I've heard about so far were very individual. When you talk to those affected afterwards, it always turns out that what was experienced at that moment was exactly the essence that that person needed. I also claim that for myself personally. It probably had to be that I got information about the assets that were already present in me. Up to this point, I had always felt that I did not fit into the system. I was always the one who stood on the sidelines, who observed, who perceived, but who didn't actually fit into the system very well myself. 
That is still the case today. But in the meantime, I say that the skills I have acquired are important, even if they are not much appreciated or needed in our society at the moment. But I don't want to lose them. They are really very important to me. I also felt the impulse to stand by myself and not let up. I had the feeling that I had entered a house through a back door, so to speak, and could leave strengthened through the front door. For me, in that experience, it was also clear, I am where I come from, I am at home. And that was a situation I have always lacked. I still have today, it's less pronounced but still there, the feeling of being caught between heaven and earth. The near-death experience brought me a bit closer to earth. I'm still not into it, but I'm a bit closer. And above all, I can now accept and embrace that there are other predispositions in me and that I don't have to conform to the norm. Can you describe your encounter with the Supreme Being in more detail? Did you have the feeling of being face to face with a He? Did you also experience something of the unity often described? For me, it is gender neutral. And I always think to myself, why do the names used for these deities actually have to be male? I experience the supreme entity, as I said, as gender neutral. I had a unity experience in that I felt embraced. It really felt like embracing each other as human beings, but I was also able to give myself completely in that moment was also soft. So it was a soft, loving embrace from the other side as well as from me. Did you experience yourself as I at all times? Yes. I was perceptible to myself at all times as the person Manuela Metza. How did the experience end? Was there something like a decision to return? No. As quickly as I was in the sphere, I was out again. In the meantime, I had finally arrived in the anaesthetic room and had no idea how long it all took. It couldn't have taken long at all, although it is now portrayed as much longer in the narrative, because the way from the place where they had parked me to the anaesthesia room wasn't very far. There were still two questions to be answered there, which I had not answered in writing before. There were two very good-looking young men in the room as nurses, and I was surprised myself that I noticed this so clearly in this situation. I then spoke to one of them about the questions I had not answered. Then he came to me, stroked my left cheek and said, you don't need to be afraid. Then I said, I'm not afraid at all. I'm just annoyed that I won't consciously experience what's happening now. Then he said, that's better too. Then I said, okay. And at that moment, 
Long before corona, masks were always compulsory in hospitals. He takes off his protective mask and shows me his face. My thought was, is he going to get in trouble now because he doesn't follow the hygiene measures? I found it very pleasant that he made himself known. And then the anaesthetist came. Until then, I didn't really have a stomachache. I don't think he had both feet in the room yet. And the abdominal pain became hellish. The cannula had shifted due to the preliminary examinations and transport. The first attempt to anaesthetize me failed. It was simply necessary to put the cannula in a different way and then put me into the deep sleep that made the operation possible. And then my journey continued. That is, until the anaesthetic, it was a continuous conscious experience for you. There was never an interruption. Yes, exactly like that. I was really conscious and said and did everything willingly. What happened next? The anaesthetic worked after all on the second try. And then I was in a black box, square in base, its height corresponding to my height. And a human hand, without destroying this box, took me by the waist and placed me out of this darkness into a light-flooded, unlimited space. As for proportion, this hand was as big as if I had been a Barbie doll in it. It was much bigger than me. I know I turned around and just enjoyed that open space. The bright light was fantastic, that distance. Not to be restricted by anything. To be freed from everything that weighed you down. I found that just phenomenal. No one tried to shape me or press me into a system. I then turned around my own axis. I was quite aware of myself. I tried to open up the whole space for myself and really did 360-degree turns. I just loved the fact that it was limitless. It didn't scare me at all, I just felt freedom. While I saw it like that, the thought came to me, how could you fill it? But not with objects or anything like that, but with other values that one could perhaps bring in. But at that moment, when I was still busy with this thought, the free space turned into a landscape dominated by pastel shades, a light blue, a light green and a sandy white. It showed a landscape that I had once seen in 1986 during an eight-hour hike that was around the Lister Ellenborgen, which is the northernmost point of Germany on the island of Silt. At the time, I had underestimated a bit how far it was, and the hike took a total of eight hours. 
It was an enormous feeling of happiness for me at that time, after this long way, to be there and to experience all this, the different incidences of light, the change also through the wind and the sea, the whole situation. I thought at the time, if God exists, then he lives here. I left it like that, finished my hike, never again dealt with the subject of God or anything like that. The moment I found myself in this place again, at the Lister Ellenborgen, I thought, okay, the answer is that God exists. At that moment, the communication started again, which had already begun in the first part of this near-death experience. Information came again, including the suggestion that I should continue to work on astrology, that I should continue to make my jewellery creations, and that these paths I had already taken were good, but not yet the end of what was possible for me. Again, I experienced this as a loving approach and being perceived, not as paternalism. There were also never obligations, you have to do this or that. But there were situations where I thought, this can't be. I'm here with the highest thing a human being can imagine. And I get such banal information as separate yourself from the Elizabeth George books. I must have looked pretty stupid. Okay, I take note of that. But what relevance can that really have? Actually, there are more important things at stake, I thought. These are novels, crime novels, that meant a lot to you? I enjoyed reading these books very much. And that's because they have quite a strong psychological element to them. So the focus is not on the criminal action itself, but rather on the psychological background. I thought, well, I'll take note of that. Then it went on once again with the hint to stay with myself, to be committed to myself, and also not to doubt myself. And then came a statement about my profession, the meaning of which was actually already clear to me at the time, but which I had unfortunately not questioned. It's not that in the office. And that was the end of the second part of my near-death experience. I would like to talk again about the free space that you experienced. You experienced an absolute free space, but then it became your personal creative free space that you wanted to fill. Can you sum it up like that? I actually saw the space as something much more universal, and not only related to my interests, but definitely also as a gain in free space for a whole society. I really felt the free space as freedom for me, 
that, yes, but I did not bring about this change. So I didn't cause myself to suddenly be in a different situation. That was not in my power. I could have been wonderfully at ease with this boundless, light-flooded space. My thoughts about what to fill it with would also have tended in that direction. Knowledge, humanity, so more in that direction. I didn't even think of a landscape. It was just clear to me that it wasn't about filling the space with furniture or any objects, but that it was about things that were more important in my eyes. I didn't remember the landscape at all. At that moment, I wasn't thinking about the landscape at all. I merely recognized it. You weren't given a specific task, perhaps because the task was in the skills and you were encouraged in your abilities? I think so, yes. And that I should have made better use of the abilities or also trust in them. A friend told me some time ago, when I was having an age-related upheaval in my life, you've been carried before, it will carry you again. And that is also such an experience that I have had since the 24th of May 2004 at the latest, that I have always really felt carried too. Even now, in the last few years, even during the corona pandemic, I thought, I have an advantage. We all have to die, only very few people realize it. Perhaps many have become more aware of it because of the pandemic, but I know where I'm going, and that has reassured me immeasurably. That's why I've never panicked. Would you call the 24th of May something like a second birthday? No, it is simply a date that I can name, like my date of birth. The term turning point would also be too big, because the changes in my life were rather gradual. There wasn't this one big moment where I said, OK, I'm leaving this office and finding something else. I was clearly in the situation of having to earn a living. That's why I don't use a special name for that date. But I am absolutely aware of the experience, every day. I talk about it, I talk about it in an unbiased way, because it is actually a matter of course for me. I used to assume that everyone had experienced something like that, and it didn't occur to me at all that it was something special, even though I knew Moody's books, I knew Kubler-Ross. It was only then that an acquaintance said to me, you had a near-death experience. Hmm was all I said. She pointed me to Kenneth Ring. Personally, I found him even better than Moody in his explanation and interpretation. Moody focused on describing the different stages of a near-death experience. For me, the black box could perhaps stand for the tunnel. The problem is always that you can't really put the experience into words. Everyone interprets their experiences. What happened was that after I was discharged from hospital, I was in hospital for about five days for care, and initially I didn't feel the need to talk to anyone. The first person I asked was my mother. 
She had had a serious lung operation about three years before, and I asked her, tell me, did you get any messages too? Messages? No. Then I thought, okay, I'm just weird and different again. But basically, you never had a problem talking about your experiences from the beginning. That's right. I'm one of those who didn't struggle with it for long. For me, it just wasn't an ordeal. It is the greatest gift of life I have ever received. Later, I spoke to two friends who had undergone really life-threatening operations, and neither of them could say that they had received information. That was fine with me, of course, but it was never an issue for me that I could be crazy. Maybe it's the others. Have you had similar comparable spiritual experiences after your near-life experiences? Not with this intensity. I was diagnosed with cancer in 2016. It was clear that I would have to have another operation. So I flirted. Can I have another date with you? Obviously that wasn't planned. But these are spiritual experiences in everyday life. You just have to be open. The biggest problem in our society is that we are so absorbed in everyday life that we no longer perceive many things. And I'm also convinced that there is this power in every human being and that the world would be a different place if people were not so busy trying to secure their existence but could and were allowed to develop their abilities. How did you move on professionally? There was the message, the office is not it. Unfortunately, I stayed in the office. On the side, I worked as an astrologer and designed jewellery. Originally, I had started with sculpture. These things have remained. I didn't continue with side jobs because it was just too much time in my schedule. I have a full-time job. That's all I could do. And what became of the crime novels? Of course, I had this mission to part with these books in my mind. Four weeks after the operation, I went back to the office and sat opposite a woman on the S-Bahn who was reading a book by Elizabeth George. As a trained bookseller, I recognised that she had bought it as a special item. It was marked accordingly. It was the only book I didn't own because I didn't like it. I thought, approach the woman and offer her your books. No, Manuela, you can't do that. Don't do that. Then I thought, but maybe this is supposed to be a confirmation for the 24th of May 2004. So do it. The lady got out in front of me. I then walked a bit faster, caught up with her and said, excuse me for coming up to you like this. I noticed that you were reading a book by Elizabeth George. Do you have several of hers already? No, this is the first one. Then I said, if you're interested, I have all the other 12 volumes. I would be happy to give them to you. 
I'll leave you my address. Three days later, she picked them up. Since then, I haven't read any crime novels. I can't watch crime novels or anything. There is enough violence shown on the daily news or in television programs, it's already hard to bear. It was simply a call to get away from the violence shown there. It's not good for the soul, although I always liked the psychology and the way the author dealt with it. Psychology has always interested me. But the books were just always connected with violence. And that's how they ended up in new hands. You experienced absolute freedom. How do you feel about the concept of freedom today in your daily life? For me, I simply have the hope of really getting to know who the real Manuela is. I know who Mesmetza was. It worked for 50 years. But Manuela, she partly fell by the wayside. And I just want to try things out. I have only one plan, to get rid of folders with documents you have to keep. Other than that, I don't have a plan. Recently, I read an interview with Matthias Brandt. Everything he planned didn't actually work out. He gave up making a mega plan for his life. That cheered me up and thought, I know exactly what you mean. I've given up on my mega plan too. I'll let it come to me. I just don't want to have to define an expectation right now, but to be really free. Because there is probably a better plan with us from a higher perspective than we can imagine in our limitedness. I am open and free now and let it come to me. I'm interested and curious. I think that was a very good conclusion. Thank you very much, Ms. Metze, for this interview and all the best to you. Thank you very much for your time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.